Father God, thank you for Freddie. Thank you for his head and his heart. Thank you for what he brings. Um, and I just pray to this morning that you would just flow through him to us. Would we have ears to listen to what you've put in him, Lord God, to say to us this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Rich. Well, it is always good to have an introduction that you totally feel you can live up to. Um, it is really, really wonderful to be here. As Rich said, I'm here um, representing WTC, but actually... WTC takes part with you and with Portswood Church in a shared vision to minister good theology, not only within the church, but also to the, we, uh, the region around here. And so it is wonderful just to share that vision and to build on that shared vision by just getting to know each other a little bit. So I came last year and spent some time with staff here, I think, and then uh, did a teaching thing at Portswood. And um, I spent some time with the staff uh, at Portswood yesterday, and it's great to come and teach here this morning. So I look forward to that relationship continuing to build. What I want to talk to you about uh, this morning is something that we think about a lot at WTC and that you will also think a lot about as a church, which is the way that God forms us. And there are many different dimensions to how God forms us. So we, we run classes in spiritual formation and we think about how God forms us for leadership, forms us for mission, forms us as uh, human uh, images of God. But we... Uh, uh, there are many different ways into that, and what I want to do this morning is to think about how God forms an individual who ends up becoming a great leader, so we're going to be thinking about Moses, uh, ends up becoming a great leader, but what we're going to focus on particularly is not the how he makes him a leader bit, we're going to focus on how he realigns his sense of identity, which has to come before he begins the process of shaping him as a leader. Now, I have every confidence that actually thinking carefully and theologically about how God forms our identity is something that you do often. So I'm not proposing to bring lots of new wisdom, but it may be that you haven't thought much about how it happens through Moses, and so sometimes just a different perspective can just help add a dimension to it. So that's what we're going to do over the next uh, 25 minutes or so, um, and I'll do my very best to be 25 minutes rather than the or so. Um, but I know it's a bad habit, so can you just be my clock watcher? Good, thank you. Um, I don't want to focus on too much. I'm going to read in a minute uh, a passage from Exodus that uh, many, if not all of you, will know incredibly well. It's the scene of Moses uh, meeting God for the first time at the fireside of the burning bush. And uh, we're not going to read that whole scene. The scene plays out across a couple of chapters. We're just going to read the first little port uh, portion of it. Uh, and so you would see if you read on that God does begin the process of leadership development in Moses. He begins the process around the fireside of this is the calling I have for you. This is how you're going to step into that calling. And when you doubt your ability, this is how you're going to do it. It's very uh, practical as much as it is theological. But we're just going to focus just at the very beginning and the encounter which deals specifically with identity. But before we even do that, I want to just make sure that we're all on the same page about the kind of guy that Moses is. And each of us will know a lot, I imagine, about Moses. And I don't know how you imagine Moses when you think of him. I think of him in terms of he's quite an intimidating person to me because he is this great leader. 
I'm an Old Testament professor, and the result of that is that I spend my every day thinking about the influence of Moses, because there is not a page in the Old Testament that is not directly influenced by the life of Moses. Either his ministry is being described, or it's being prepared for, or it is actually happening, or it is, uh, all the repercussions are being experienced, or later on when the prophets are thinking about how did we come to be where we are now and where is God leading, he only uses the language of the life of Moses to describe those things, because Moses becomes this theological figurehead for Israel through which everything is described. The New Testament makes no sense if you take Moses out of it. The New Testament constantly uses the language of Moses. He becomes this figure who, even though he doesn't get to walk into the promised land because of a slightly obscure and ambiguous failing somewhere along the line, he is this almost perfect leader who leads the people of Israel through miraculous means out of slavery into freedom, out of no national identity, international identity, out of a place of broken covenant with God into reformed covenant with God that makes the model for the new covenant with Christ. He's this extraordinary leader, and we shouldn't lose sight of the extraordinary leader that he became, but nor should we ever lose sight of the broken man that he began as being. And you may know the beginnings of his story. He was born in a time where it was not safe to be born as a baby boy in, in Egypt, as a slave amongst the Israelites, at a time where Pharaoh, who was feeling threatened by the Israelites, was trying to stem the flow of, of productivity, physical productivity, biological productivity, by throwing all male babies into the Nile. And so, out of a sense of uh, fear for the safety of their own son, Moses' uh, mother and his sister uh, take the baby Moses and put him into the Nile, uh, the very place where he was going to end up at Pharaoh's hands, and they put him into the Nile, and they send him through the reeds, which is an interesting little description, that it sends him through the reeds of the Nile. That matters for Exodus, by the way, because the Red Sea that eventually Israel is going to walk through, at this time in history, wasn't called the Red Sea, it was called the Reed Sea. Happy little pun in English, but in Hebrew it's quite different. This is the Reed Sea. And so Moses begins his life before he's done anything, before he has any control over his life. The first experience that he has in life is to navigate the waters of the Reed Sea in order to save a life. And it becomes a feature of his leadership, the leader that he becomes. You can see God is already working on him at this point, preparing him for the ministry that he's going to carry out. Because the kind of leader he becomes is the kind of leader who never asks people to do anything that he hasn't in some way already done. He does not ask the Israelites to walk through the Red Sea before he has gone through the reeds. And he goes through the reeds and his life is saved and he is brought up um, as a, a combination of a slave, an Israelite slave, because he still is raised by his mother, but in, under the, the shadow of the court of Egypt, and then in later life, totally in the court of Egypt. And then, out of a sense of uh, not really understanding how to hold those two identities in tension, he finds himself in a situation where he sees an Egyptian beating a, a Hebrew slave, and he 
cries out against it, and he physically reacts against it and murders the abuser. And the result of that is now he is a criminal and is exiled. And so he's thrown out of Egypt and no longer has any connection to either the Israelite family that he grew up with or the Egyptian family that he grew up with. And he is now a nomad in the middle of nowhere. And he settles in Midian in the wilderness. Again, he does not ask the people to go through the wilderness until he has lived in the wilderness. He lives in the wilderness for 40 years, by the way. And he asks them to go through the wilderness for 40 years. He doesn't ask them to do anything that he hasn't already done. And he lives in the wilderness and comes to a point where he has a son. And he has a son and names him Gershom. And Gershom means foreigner. And he names his son foreigner because that is how he views himself. And he talks about, this is my son Gershom because I am an alien in an alien land. But he's really obscure and ambiguous about exactly what land he means. So is he only just now an alien in a foreign land because he's, he's an Egyptian in, a, in Midian? Or was he an alien in Egypt because he's an Israelite growing up in an Egyptian house? And what emerges is this sense of when you meet Moses as, as an adult for the first time, he is a man who is struggling with an identity crisis. Is he an Israelite? Is he an Egyptian? Or is he a Midianite? Is he a slave? Is he a prince? Or is he a shepherd? He doesn't know. Where is his home? He doesn't know. As you read through Moses' story, what you find is there are three doubts that, that wriggle around him and that always hold him back and they get in the way of what God is trying to do through him. They come out as expressions of doubt. Around the fireside, he expresses them really clearly in three clear lines. We'll read one of them this morning. And that line is, who am I? Identity crisis. The second one is, what if they don't believe me? And he doubts his calling and his message. And the third is, I can't do it. Send someone else. As he doubts his ability. And we haven't got time to look at how God, even around this fireside scene, forms Moses in each of those areas, begins the process of changing his perspective. We're just going to look at the first of them, but the first of them is the root of them all. His doubts about his calling and his message, his doubts about his ability are all rooted ultimately in his doubts about his identity. So I want us just to know that going into this passage that I now read, and I'm going to read to you from Exodus 3. And I'm just going to read you the first 15 uh, verses. Moses was keeping the flock of his father. Oh, by the way, this is something you won't care about, but I've got the microphone. Um, <laughs> Hebrew has a, an odd little quirk about it compared to English, which is that in Hebrew, the verb to be and all of its derivations, which in this sentence is was, uh, is, is unnecessary. It's not useful for a sentence because all of that grammatical information that it gives you, past tense, present tense, so on, is held in other verbs. So you don't use it, and it just drops out and it's implied. The only time it ever uses the verb is when it's trying to make an emphatic point about that verb. So sometimes you'll hear God saying, I am the Lord, and it will put the I in because it's another one of those words that drops out. 
and the am there of is drops out. I am the Lord, as opposed to anyone else that you might think might be Lord. I am the Lord. Well, here you have Moses was a shepherd. And you shouldn't care about that necessarily, except that you should totally care about it, because this is the writer telling you, it's a little nod to you as a reader, you're about to see a major transition in identity here. Moses was a shepherd that morning, but he's about to not be a shepherd anymore. Actually, in many ways, that's not true. In many ways, he's about to be just a shepherd of a different group of flock. Really, because what God needs at this stage in Israel's life, what God needs, and I don't know how he's supposed to find someone like this, what he needs is someone who is a shepherd, who understands what shepherding looks like, but who is a shepherd who understands what wilderness life is looked like, and who understands not only what wilderness life looks like, but knows where God's presence is on this mountain, and knows how to get to this mountain from Egypt, and knows how to do that by having access to the Egyptian court. Now, I don't know how he's going to find anyone who qualifies like that, but here's Moses, and Moses has been perfectly positioned in life to do this. He's the only human being alive who is perfectly positioned to talk to the one human being who needs to hear God's word for the whole world to change. And we all live on a different scale from Moses and Pharaoh, and that's fine, but actually the same truth boils down to the individual here. Every single one of you, God has put you in a place where only you are the only human being alive who can have the one conversation that God needs you to have this week. Sorry, that was just the word was. We're going to speed up from that. <laughs> Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And he said, I will be with you. And this is the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain." But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus shall you say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. And you may have picked up already the ways in which God is speaking into issues of identity, speaking into issues of Moses' identity and speaking into issues of his own identity. And these things are intimately connected. Ultimately, Moses cannot know who he is unless he knows who God is. And it's because of the word that we were given right at the end, which may have been from you, I can't remember. Did you give the word? Right, that's my sermon. So this is how we know we need to be listening to this today, because this is all about discovering identity in God's presence. And Moses' identity has no meaning unless he understands who the God is in whose presence he lives. So that's where we're building to. But when we look at this passage in a classroom, which we do, We'll have a moment where I'll ask people, well, what are the things that stand out from this passage? What are the details that stand out, either because they just suddenly struck you, or they have always meant something to you, or you've just never really understood what it's doing there? And almost inevitably, this detail that gets put out more than any other is the removal of shoes. And I don't know if that is one of a detail that would have stuck out to any of you, but it comes up a lot this removal of shoes, that when Moses is invited in, it is not until he has removed his shoes because he is in a holy place. And it's an odd little moment. And it doesn't seem odd to us now because we have built thousands of years of cultural baggage on the back of that little motion to the point where this is a universally, globally recognized action that is just an act of respect. All religions share it. All cultures share it. You remove your shoes as an act of respect. In a ritual context, you do so as an act of reverence. What's interesting is that there are scholars in the world who devote their lives to thinking about how rituals work, and mostly they do that so that the rest of us don't have to, because it's difficult work to try and figure out exactly how you find the roots of where a ritual came from and how does that work. And the conclusions that pretty much everyone who studies that comes to is that rituals that end up being sacred start their lives from ordinary everyday behavior. Pretty much every ritual you can think of in the Bible began its life as ordinary everyday behavior, became associated with God, and then took on a sacred nature. So we read this now from the position of it's already carrying the sacred nature, and we need to rewind a bit to ask ourselves, what does it look like in the everyday? And the way that we would do that is that we would ask ourselves a couple of questions. Why would you be wearing shoes? Would be one. And in this world, where everyone is uh, either in a harsh environment in a small town, which they might call a city, but is probably uh, no bigger than a small village in this country, and uh, or more likely living some kind of agricultural life, nomadic life, and also very much hand-to-mouth, your work and life is hard. You are working barren ground. You are going out and putting your shoes on to protect yourself against that ground. So you are going out to work, and you're going out to travel. Much more important question, when do you take your shoes off? Not a rhetorical question. When you get home. 
And I don't know if this is how you think about holiness. Because holiness can sometimes carry connotations for us of keeping you at a distance. Don't go in there, it's holy, it'll kill you. Don't look God in the face, he's holy, it'll kill you. Don't go in the holy of holies, you cannot bear it in your unholiness. But actually that's only half the story. Because every single incident where you can see that kind of attitude being conveyed in the Old Testament, it is accompanied with a ritual that is designed to overcome it. Or it is designed with a formulation of society as a way of overcoming it. So not everyone can fit in the Holy of Holies, but one person does get to. They've got to go through a whole ritual life to get there. But the whole point of it is that God wants people in his presence. Here you have, come no closer. This is something that Israel is going to hear as a nation at the foot of Mount Sinai. Come no closer. Only Moses may come up. And they might think that the come no closer means that God does not want them in his presence if it hadn't been for this scene here where God says, come no closer so that you can come closer. What you need to do is remove your shoes. You remove your shoes because right now you're coming to me as if I'm just work for you. You're coming to me as if I'm just another task that you have to obey through life. But that is not what this is. This place in my presence is your home. He says to a man who has no sense of home and does not know where he comes from. Identity begins with knowing your home. This is true of every single individual just in their life. Their first sense of identity comes within seconds of being born as you begin to figure out your sense of home. And your sense of home is located first around your mother and then that awareness slightly grows and it might grow to your environment and then to your father or it might do it the other way around. But you, that's, it is how your first sense of identity is grounded, is in your sense of home. And here we have Moses' identity being reformed by discovering that he is at home in the place of worship at home in the place of God's presence, at home in the place of obedience to God. And it's how we're to feel when we come into God's presence. Both reverent and intimate. Both aware of the glory and also aware of the invitation. You are not held at bay you are invited in because this is your home. And indeed, he goes on then to having established his home to begin to show Moses that he really knows who Moses is. Now, we've seen little glimpses of it already. So we've seen, for example, that he knows Moses by name. Moses, Moses, here I am. But actually, that little scene is telling you that God knows more about Moses than Moses might know about himself at this point. Because you'll have seen scenes like that before where someone's name is repeated twice and they respond, here I am. You'll have seen, for example, Samuel do it. You'll have seen Isaiah do it. You'll have seen Abraham do it. And the common thread between all of those is, it turns out, That's how God introduces a ministry of prophecy. That's how he identifies a prophet. First name, first name, here I am. 
And so what's being shown here is that God already knows Moses' calling. He was a shepherd, now he's a prophet. He knows him by name. He knows him by gifting and calling. He also is already seen that we know he knows his nature and his character. How is he going to get Moses to take some initiative here? He's just going to put a little bush off in the corner that's doing a slightly strange thing. Because Moses is the kind of person who'll say, that's strange, I better go and see what that's all about. So we've already seen little glimmers of Moses, of God really knowing Moses. But the key moment is when God takes a formulation of language that is really common in the Old Testament. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's repeated over and over and over again. It's a really consistent covenant formula. It's about confirming your identity in God's covenant. That's what it's always about. But here it breaks the form because it doesn't say your fathers, plural. It says your father. It's the only time it does it. It seems really deliberate. It does it with plural fathers in just the next sentence that we read. So it seems really deliberate here that what we have here is not just a a general statement about I know who you are, by the way, are you a Midianite, an Israelite, or an Egyptian? You're an Israelite. It's more than that. It's Moses, I know your father. I know you. We're not given that information as readers of Exodus. We know his mother. We know his sister. We don't know his father. God knows him better than we know him as readers. And as readers, we're given loads of access to knowing people better than they know themselves. God still knows him better. Identity emerges as you know that you are known. It starts with knowing where your home is, and it grows as you know that you are known. But none of that means anything unless you know who God is. Because what's striking is that as this continues, and God then says, well, here's what I'm going to ask you to do, and this sparks the first moment and the deepest moment of doubt in Moses, he cries out, who am I that I should do this? As if he hadn't noticed at all that what had preceded all of that, and I don't know if you picked up on it, was God saying, I have noticed, I have heard, I have seen, I have remembered my covenant, I will come down, I will deliver. I'd like you to bring them to me. Who am I that I should do this? And it's partly, uh, I can't do it, but mostly it's it's an identity cry. And the answer sounds a little bit like Jesus does sometimes. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with this characteristic of Jesus. Someone will ask him a question. It's a stupid question. So Jesus will ignore the question and will answer the question that they should have asked. You'll be familiar, I'm sure, with that tendency. And it is what it sounds like here. Who am I that I should do this? The question's wrong, Moses. It's not who am I, it's how can I. The answer to how can I is I am with you. That's what it sounds like is going on. But what if it's not... What if Moses asks a question and God gives him a direct answer to the question? Who am I? Moses, you are, I am with you. That's your identity. That is who you are in this world. You are, I am with you. And your identity has no meaning outside of that reality. But that only has meaning if you know who he is. And Moses doesn't, as was clear when he says, but if they ask me your name, 
Now, in one sense, we might just think, well, he knows the God of, the, of his ancestors, and so it's, it's a name thing. But actually, it's probably more connected to the fact that in the ancient world, there is a general view about how gods work, and the basic view that all nations carry about gods, and I say gods in plural advisedly because the rest of the nations all think there are many of them, that what they all agree about those gods is, firstly, they can't go anywhere. They're located to the land that they're a part of. Egypt has their gods, Canaan has their gods, Babylon has their gods. So the most remarkable thing that you're going to discover in Exodus is a god who is not fixed to this mountain. And in fact, that revelation happens in one of the weirdest scenes in the whole of the Bible. You know this little scene just after this that we haven't read, where Moses is going to Egypt and he goes to sleep, and then God comes to kill him for no apparent reason at all, comes to kill him, and then his Midianite wife realizes it's because either, this is a translation problem, he or his son hasn't been circumcised. Translation's not clear about that detail. And then the solution is that whoever hasn't been circumcised gets circumcised and their foreskin is put on the toes of that person. It's really, really weird. No scholars understand at all what the ritual there is about, No one agrees. But whilst everyone's having that argument, what everyone's ignoring is that God is not on the mountain. That he has gone with Moses to Egypt, and that one motion has completely blown apart the whole world's theology about how a God works. This God is different. This God can do more. This God is sovereign in a way that no other God is sovereign. But one of the things that all the other nations think is that you can control these gods so long as you know their name. If you know their name and the right ritual, you can evoke them. You can get them to do stuff. And in fact, pharaohs rely on that because their job is to call the gods to action to get them to do their bidding so that they keep the creation in order. That's pharaoh's job. The whole world relies on him having that power. Once a year... I realise I'm going over my five-minute warning that you just gave there, but I I am only two minutes off. This is a tangent, though. I'm just why I'm saying that. Um, Once a year, Pharaoh will stand up as a display of power to the world, and he will stand up at dawn, just at the moment of dawn, and he will command Ra, the sun god, to appear. And he does. And at the end of the day, he will command Ra to rest and he goes to bed. And it seems really silly to us, because, of course, that's what's going to happen, but it's never not worked. (laughs) So Pharaoh is totally bought into this idea that he has divine power over divine beings. Pharaoh himself views himself as a part of the pantheon of Egypt. He is a god in human form. That is basically what's going to unfold in Egypt, in Exodus, is this battle between two people claiming to be a god, Yahweh and Pharaoh. One of them isn't a god. That was a bad idea to call that fight, and he calls that fight. But in this moment, Moses is showing that he thinks about gods in the way that everyone else thinks about gods. If I'm going to say that we're in Egypt, that God is somehow going to do this, I'm going to need to know his name, because otherwise gods can't do anything. And to that, God gives three answers. First answer. I don't need glasses, I know what it says. First answer. I am who I am. I'm not who they are. I am who I am. There is no way of understanding who I am through any other way than knowing who I am. 
There's no other measure you can apply. This is an incredibly important theological message for the world right now, because we live in a world where we are surrounded by people that make decisions about what God is like based on what they think a God should be like. If God was real, there wouldn't be evil, for example. Heard that one recently? It is really common to think about God's in those kind of ways. And his answer, it doesn't work like that. You can't know me based on any idea you've got about what a God should be like or what a God you think might be like. I am only like me. There is nothing else like me. The only way to know me is to know me. It's a relational call, and it's reinforced by the fact that he says his name is I Am. Now, in a classroom, at this point, I ask a trick question. I do tell them it's a trick question, but the question is, what does the name Yahweh mean? Because the name Yahweh is used in this passage. It's it's translated as the Lord and then put in capital letters. Personal name of God, Yahweh. And I'm hoping that someone will jump into the trap on behalf of everyone and say, I am. But it doesn't. When God says, I am who I am, he says, Echye, Asher Echye, I am who I am. Yahweh is from the same verb, that same verb to be that you only use when you're emphasizing something. Yahweh doesn't mean I am, it means he is. So you have God's name when he says it is I am, but when you say it, it's he is. So God's name is relational. It changes according to proximity. There is an account in the, there's one psalm, at least one psalm that I found, that speaks to God as if he's talking to him by name, directly as you are. So you have this name that is fluid because it changes relationally. Because ultimately God is a God of relationship and calls you into relationship, which is why you can only know him by knowing him. It's a relational call. And this is the God, he says, that is the God of your fathers, now plural, Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This God of the covenant who is going to save you because he has remembered his covenant and he has heard the cry of the people. And all of this is formative for Moses. All of this makes an enormous difference so that if we were to read on and see the first scene that Moses actually plays in the ministry, which is before Pharaoh throwing a a snake, what is it called? Not a serpent, not a snake, it's a staff. A staff down on the ground and it becomes a serpent. That actually the terms have changed there and we haven't got time to talk about exactly why, but one of the terms that's changed is that Moses had said, I'll only go if I'll do the miracles and Aaron says the words. Imagine having so much anxiety in your identity bound up that you would rather do the miracle than say the word. Because this is a degree of anxiety that is bound up. And God begins to set it free and he is able to perform this miracle in front of Pharaoh without question because he has understood one fundamental reality, which is that he is not an Israelite or a Midianite, or an Egyptian. He is not a shepherd, a slave, or a prince. He is, I am with you. That's who he is. He does not come from Egypt, he does not come from Midian, he does not come from Israel. He comes from God's presence. And that's where he finds his home. So here's my question. Who are you? Do you know that you are I am with you. Do you know that your calling and your message and your gifting are all rooted 
in that one reality. Do you know that God has formed you perfectly to bear his image? And he invites you to walk on a journey with him in relationship where he will draw that out from the shell so the world can see it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we are known, that before we know ourselves, before anyone else has a sense of who we are, you know who we are. Lord, you've known who we are from the moment you knitted us in the womb. You've known who we are since the moment you imagined our creation. Thank you, Lord, that that means that we can trust you above all others when you tell us who you see us to be. And Lord, help us to hear really clearly the answer that you are with us, that that is who you have called us and created us to be. That is our identity. And help us to hear your call home, to know, Lord, that when we come to your presence, you invite us to remove our shoes and not rush away, to feel at home in the place of holiness, so that when we go out into the world, we're not leaving the place of holiness, but taking it with us and spending our whole lives inviting others to remove their shoes so that they might find their home too. Help us to be bearers, Lord, of that good news. And Lord, if there are those of us here who are really struggling with that sense of identity, Lord, I pray that by your spirit now you would meet with us that you would whisper into our ear, that you would settle into our heart the knowledge that you are with us, however much we don't believe it. You are with us. This is home, however much we feel unwelcome. This is home. That you do call us to know you, however much we fear it. You do call us to know you and come to you. Thank you, Lord.